Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness. And every week, I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. And this week's episode is even more special than usual because we have not one, but two experts. Welcome to the show, Professor Sarah Derebo and Nandini Pande, where I ask them, how did they think about diversity in the ancient Mediterranean? Welcome to Getting Curious. Have we got an episode for you? We're going into the time machine and you know there's no place I love to go more than that. So you know on our show we've learned that we can't apply our contemporary understandings of gender, sexuality, and race to the past. Today, we're going back to Greco-Roman antiquity to learn more about ancient understandings of diversity. Our guests are... Amazing. I'm so excited that they're here. First, we have Sarah Derebo, who is an assistant professor of classics at Stanford University. Come on, resume. She's also the author of the new book, Untangling Blackness in Greek Antiquity. Ah, Title is giving me everything. Welcome, Sarah. And we have Nandini Pandey who is an associate professor of classics at Johns Hopkins University. She studies ethnic and cultural diversity in the Roman Empire. Welcome to Getting Curious, you two. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. I feel like you should introduce my classes because I just feel like a drum roll would follow and then students would do all of their work. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I would be a really good hype person for like college professors, I feel like. Here's the thing. I was minding my own business this one day on Getting Curious, and we were interviewing Sarah Bond, who we love, and that's how we discovered all of your gorgeous work. I always thought that, like, Greece and Rome were operating in, like, different times and that, like, there was, like, no overlap. I just thought that it, like, basically just looked like Gladiator, kind of, like, fuzzy, like, you know, wheat, and there was, like, kind of Enya-esque music playing everywhere. (laughs) dash in a little bit of Pompeii and I was like, I get it. Honey, I don't get it. So I'm just like very fascinated by like how people understood things in different times. And I think I'm also really fascinated by like, and correct me if I'm wrong, either of you want to jump in here, but like race was still a thing even back then. It was just like different. You're good. Right? Absolutely. And I think even what race means is so explosive Because when we think about race, we can't not think about skin color. But like you were saying, even if we think about family orientations, how someone identifies, how many husbands or wives someone has, there's so many other ways of figuring out how to categorize people. So I feel like this is an area that we all, when we revisit it, we need to remember that we have these modern goggles and that we can't take them off completely. But being really conscious of it is useful I think we need to do that for every category. And when it comes to skin color, we need to be especially careful because of the ways that anti-Blackness still informs our present and how easy it is to say Black equals slavery through time immemorial. And we never even need to think about why we have that assumption or how that assumption is one that was built on slave traders in the 15th century onward, really entrenching their policies through practice and language and actually does not apply in the same ways to a time period centuries, millennia before a single person was forcibly transported from Africa to the Americas. I think if we work with an expansive definition of race as power um, shaping populations and controlling populations through categories that are often imaginary or based on changeable factors, sometimes skin color, sometimes gender, sometimes other things, then we have this really big lens through which we can examine the way a lot of societies put themselves together similarly and differently. And my students always learn a lot by traveling back to antiquity because there were huge categories and huge inequalities in antiquity, but it helps us unravel some of our own very modern reflexive assumptions about race and color and ethnicity that unfortunately are baked into our country, specifically here in the U.S. as part of a legacy of the transatlantic slave trade. Yes, so much to unpack. I'm like so excited. So just so that we can like further set the stage, because like, you know how you just said 15th century? Uh, I used to go through this phase in the podcast where like that would make me go off rails for like 30 minutes about like, what does 15th century mean? Listeners, I'm not doing it to you again. We are not doing that. (laughs) When are we talking about when we're talking about like Greco-Roman antiquity? 
You bring up a great question, Jonathan, because we're not always specific about what we mean. And a lot of times when we say ancient Greece, for example, we mean only the 5th century BCE, only the years between 400 and 300 BCE. And that's it, even though there's so much more, because that's a time when a lot of the writers that we have are producing work, when a lot of the productions that we see are getting really popular. But it's not the only time period. That shorthand is one of the gatekeeping techniques, I think, unfortunately, of the Academy, where if I say 5th century and I don't even say BCE, I'm just assuming that you know what I'm talking about. And I have trouble with the numbers, too. And I always have to remember, is it subtracting 100 or adding 100? And carry the ones. And so Ooh. it can get really confusing. But I think that the the shorthand that I have learned through my years of schooling is 5th century BCE is when Greece was really hot. And in terms of Rome, the first, second centuries CE or AD is when Rome was producing in ways that we consider being really legible today. And so that's roughly the end of the Roman Republic. It's a transition of government from a republic into an empire. And so because of that transition and the amount of literature and monuments that grow out of it, we tend to reduce Rome to maybe a 200-year period, and we give Greece 100 years. And because chronologically, the 5th century BCE predates the 1st and 2nd century CE, we tend to talk about Greece and Rome rather than Rome and Greece as a way to signal that we're going from the deep, deep past to the kind of deep past. But I'm curious to hear what Nandini uses to think about these time periods. That's great. And I'd add there's also a geographical dimension layering on top of the chronological ones. Sarah's also thinking of classical Athens, but there's actually a bunch of city-states in the ancient Greek world. They're all speaking slightly different dialects. They all worship slightly different versions of the same kinds of gods. So there's a lot of different groups that get layered under the concept of classical Greece. And there's a lot of diversity that gets hidden by the conflation of Greece with 5th century Athens. I would say Rome spans hundreds, if not thousands of years, depending on how you want to define it. This is a culture that traces itself back to this legendary exile from Asia named Aeneas, who around the year 1000-ish BC migrated from the sacked city of Troy that was destroyed from Asia into Europe and supposedly brought his immigrant people over to Italy. And Mm. the Italian culture was sort of formed from the intermingling of these different ethnic groups. And so that's around a thousand. And then there's another founder figure named Romulus, who is supposed to have founded the city of Rome in the year 753 BC. So this is a couple hundred years earlier than classical Greece. Um, And this guy, he founded a city, then he had no one to live in it. So what he did was he threw open the doors and he invited refugees and criminals and people from all over who wanted to come in to come and populate his city. So this creates a precedent where Rome is inviting people in from elsewhere. And then because they have no women, they actually have to go and steal women from a neighboring tribe called the Sabines. And this sets a precedent for marrying outside your immediate family group. So this is all supposedly happening in the legendary past. Um, These stories weren't written down until around maybe like 100 BC to 100 AD. But these are stories the Romans told to explain the very multi-ethnic world they saw around them. Basically, the history of Rome is it started as a tiny little village on the River Tiber. There was nothing special about it. And it just all the surrounding people, conquered them, incorporated them, often enslaved them. So this was not a pretty process. But then over time, because of Rome's really unique manumission and citizen policies, which we can go into later, these people kind of became part of Rome. So it's really a kind of world empire. It spans three continents and it includes people from very different ethnic groups. As an imperial system, it figures out ways to get them all working toward the imperial economy from around 200 to 100. This is a really important period for Rome because it conquers Carthage, which is a North African empire um, of Semitic and some other peoples. And then it also conquers the remnants of the Greek alliances. Greeks were really much admired in Rome. So Rome wants to be like Greece. It actually looks up to conquered Greece. And the Roman joke was that first Rome conquered Greece and then Greece conquered Rome culturally. So Rome conquers Greece? The Roman Empire, based out of the city of Rome, comes to include all of Greece, all of old Turkey, all of the Near East, and lots of parts of Africa and Europe as well. The high point geographically is about 117 AD under the Emperor Trajan. People usually date the end of Rome to about 476 CE. But you could argue that actually the Byzantine people in Constantinople, modern day Istanbul, continued Roman culture. They still call themselves Romans for another thousand years. 
So we're talking like about 2000 years of Rome. Damn. Sarah, your work focuses like in Greece, even though they like were happening at the same time. Absolutely, Jonathan. I work on ancient Greece and whatever that encompasses, ancient Greek speakers. I don't know, Nandini, when you were in school, people made you choose one, but I was very much told, choose Greece or Rome and then stick with it and ride that train until the last stop. So even in the training process, it's very much you kind of choose which will be your specialty, even though you need to really understand both in order to even get your degree. And when you're teaching, students don't care if you're a Greek specialist. If they really want to know about Rome, they'll ask you questions if they want to know about Carthage and all of these other regions that were involved with Rome, they'll come to you. So it's a broad region, but you're right, Jonathan, in terms of specialties. There's also just fantastic stuff much later in antiquity that, again, because of the disciplinary boundaries Sarah is pointing to, we don't do as good a job as we should incorporating this into our field and into our study and into our teaching. So, like, there are amazing mosaics from Roman North Africa, from the edges of empire that actually kind of become a very central point of imperial culture that are more like fourth century CE. And Roman culture is still going strong in other parts of the world, even after the city of Rome uh, kind of reduces and becomes a bunch of rubble and ruins. And Greece is really just like for us who are like a little bit more like Baisak in the words of Anna Delve. Greece didn't start in a vacuum at like 300 BCE. It was like, there's probably like some stuff, you know, happening, but then it's really most known in its high point in like three to 400 BCE. Yeah, absolutely. And so even thinking about the ways in which the Greek world was borrowing and connecting with their neighbors too, there were people from the Mycenaean civilization, the island of Crete, there were so many other nation states that were being built and Greece, like Rome, eventually ends up solidifying their power and then expanding a bit as well. But Greece was not without problems. There were both wars with their neighbors in Persia, but also wars with the different city-states as well. So the movie 300 talks about the Peloponnesian War, but there are all these ways in which Greece is not monolithic, and the city of Athens, as Nandini said, starts becoming a representative for the entire, what we would now call a country, but then was a bunch of city-states. But someone who was from Athens and someone who was from Sparta definitely consider themselves different peoples or at least had their own cultures. But today, if you travel to Greece, you can fly from Athens to Sparta and it's still all part of the same nation state. So the ideas of nation states being as big as they are is one that is very modern because even as the Greek empire was spreading, I could be from 5,000 miles away from you or even if I were from Turkey, There's a famous writer who, in the 5th century BCE, again, that time period, Herodotus, he's writing from modern-day Turkey or ancient Asia Minor, a city called Halicarnassus, but he's writing in a different dialect than the people in Athens, but they can still understand each other. But he also has roots and cultural backgrounds that are specific to his local geographic point, but he's also part of this greater Greek world. So if we think about English in America to versus English in Britain or English in Australia, we can kind of see the ways in which even when you speak the same language, barring different dialects, it's still very different cultures that can form. Nandini, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. And in fact, just to build off of that, you could actually even argue that any sense of Greek identity at all comes from contact with other peoples. What we think of as the first Greek writer who is actually a collection of singers, we call this person or people Homer. These songs that we call the Homeric epics um, are in a dialect that is associated with modern day Turkey. And they're talking about this war where all these fragmented city states whose leaders actually hate each other, they all go to this poor city in Asia and they besiege the city and the Greeks are all fighting amongst themselves, whereas the Asians are actually a multi-ethnic but more unified civilization. It's actually that action that kind of constructs a sense of Greekness uh, that Greeks start to get referred to under one term. And actually the act of traveling around these islands and Asia and singing these songs that had to do with all these heroes that are related to each other, they worship the same gods, that actually helps create a sense of Greek identity. And similarly, um, Sarah was talking Talking about Herodotus. Herodotus is this author who's writing the story of the Greek city-states fending off a Persian invasion, but it's because of that Persian threat that the Greek city-states have to start getting along in the first place, and it's that contact with an Eastern group that helps solidify any sense of Greek identity or unity or cooperation. People have been colonizing for 
the longest time. We have been doing this violence ass, trying to impart our views on that person over there for fucking thousands of years. Why can we not just make out? Like, we are also <laughs> cute. Like, we should just be uh, literally making out. Like, you're cute. No, you're cute. I love your culture. No, I love your amphora or whatever. Like, why <laughs> are we doing all the fighting? You know, just it's like, so, but we're getting into that. So when modern day Italy is modern day Italy, and then modern day Greece is modern day Greece. But ancient Greece goes from... So we can think of these as epicenters. So with the city of Athens and the city of Rome, these are two epicenters. And then they expand in the in the text, the histories by this author, Herodotus, we've mentioned a few times. He writes this nine volume, nine book tome all about Greece and their different neighbors, people they get along with, people they don't get along with, lovers, enemies and so on. And you get to go to different parts of the world as a way to build your world map as well. And when I give talks, I usually will show the map of the world according to Herodotus to help us understand who the Greeks were in contact with. That being said, even with that map, these are who the Greeks are telling us they're in contact with. So sometimes we need to take things with a grain of salt. But in terms of their neighbors in the South, for example, I'm really curious about their interactions with people in what we would call modern day Africa. So in, in one of Herodotus's books, he talks about someone from Persia, which is modern day Iran, who wants to go and conquer parts of what we would now call Egypt and Sudan, parts of an ancient civilization of Nubia. And so because he doesn't speak the language, and again, this is Herodotus telling us the story in Greek. So this Greek writer from what is modern day Turkey is telling us a story about people who are from modern day Iran, who are then sending people from modern day Egypt to go down to modern day Sudan to figure out why these people in Northeastern Africa have such great food and resources. So it's such a geographical mind-twisting journey you go on, but it's really exciting to think about how much contact all of these people were having with each other to even know how to get from point A to point B. There's a great writer, an anonymous writer, who was an Egyptian who spoke Greek about 500 years later, who writes a Periplus, which is a journey on the Red Sea of this region, and gives exact, exact descriptions of the, the geographic markers and distance from one city to another in North Africa. So he goes from this city in Egypt and then you travel 15 states and you get to this city. So there is so much specificity in terms of how to get from point A to point B in ways that blow our minds because without GPSs, without Google Maps, we have a lot of trouble even figuring out how to get to supermarkets in our neighborhood, let alone how to travel and go visit people who have fabled resources of, of food and of water. I think it was on Getting Curious and we were learning about like the Nubian culture of Egypt. But then you were saying that like the idea of whiteness and blackness was more like 1453 by that Henry guy. But we're more <laughs> talking about like three to 400 BC is the height of Greece. And then Rome comes of age a little bit later. I'm glad to just show you the map because it helps kind of make sense of some of the parts of the world we're talking about. And so um, Egypt is right here, which even the ancients thought was the cradle of civilization and the way that they got a lot of their traditions and gods, although they had a very um, mixed relationship with Egypt because it sort of felt very foreign and different. And um, for sure, Egypt had contact with further south places. And we should do more in classics to talk about Nubian contributions and Nubian rulership of Egypt. Um, Sarah was talking about these Greek city-states, which are around here, but also there are some plenty of Greek cities in Asia. Um, there's also Greek colonies in Sicily and over here and also in Italy. So actually, when Rome is a very young civilization, it already has very formative contact with Greek culture before it actually goes and takes over Greece. And then uh, Sarah had been talking about the Periplus, like sailing around here. Um, the, the Romans actually had some trade routes that go all the way out to India, the islands of spices, um, and they're working, they're trading with Arab and Persian merchants. But throughout this, it's really interesting. There's no huge category of blackness or whiteness or anything like that, but the Romans and the Greeks tended to think of specific groups of people, and they often understood their difference in terms of their different clothes, in terms of their different traditions, maybe in terms of their environments or geography. They thought that people were affected by where they lived. So the word Ethiopian literally means burnt face, not because this is bad. We got to unwrite all that. It's because the Ethiopians lived closer to the sun, closer to the equator. And so it was thought that, you know, they're living near the sun, their skin is getting tanned. But 
all humans are fundamentally the same. So if you move someone at, from there to someplace further north, then all the blood would rush away from the cold and they would become pale and their temperament might change. This idea that your environment shapes who you are and not some innate physical difference that makes you inferior or superior is one of the key ways that thinking of race through an ancient lens can help estrange and help us rethink our modern categories. So Sarah, in your book, you take great care with terminology, which like I obsessed. Um, can you help us understand like what names we should be using for these places and people as we like go forward in this conversation? Sure. And I even want to gently push back on what Nandini was saying about what Ethiopia or Ethiopia means. So the etymology or the roots of the word come from two Greek words, Aitho, I blaze and Ops, face. But something that I call out or I try to gently responsibly call out in my own work is when we translate this as being sunburned, the modern lens comes out because who gets sunburned? People who have lighter skin get sunburned. So then it sets the norm as being light skin and dark as being some sort of aberration or an anomaly. And so what I try to do is even in translating words like Ethiopia, think really carefully about the ways in which I don't want to inject this idea of something being really painful or have people start thinking about who can afford to go and tan, who can afford to get sunburned, who goes to tanning salons and so forth. So I tend to use sunkissed as a way to be a little bit lighter, a little bit more jovial, but also to show that, yes, there's an, a direct interaction with the sun that's going on, but it's not as painful or as much as we don't need to have white as a norm for everything. And that's something I push back against in, in my work in general. So even the idea of whiteness doesn't come up in my work unless we're talking about the actual color white, white like maybe the, the color of Nandini's shirt or something that is very much objective. And I feel like in the fashion world too, Jonathan, you know that even with white, there's so many different shades as there are with black. So we use these terms as catch-all phrases, but we don't always pay attention to the fact that it's a color and it's also this racial marker that we've created as humans after the transatlantic slave trade. So white, for, for the purposes of antiquity, does not refer to the groups of people from Europe that we would associate it with. If anything, there's some environmental treaties and tracts that are roughly contemporary with the time Herodotus is writing, this 5th century BCE that we've been speaking about. And here, the people who are white are the Scythians, the people who live near the Black Sea, and they're white and sometimes red because of how cold it is and how much... They need to conserve energy. And then the Ethiopians or the people who are closer to the equator are black, but that's because of the proximity with the sun. And I do, I want to talk about the word Ethiopia for a minute, if I can, because as we saw on the map, there's the modern nation state Ethiopia. And then there's this term Ethiopia, Nubia, Kush that we're using. And the two definitely need to be teased apart. And so what I do in my work is to try to always offer a map to situate us. So the map that I'm showing you here that I'll share with listeners hopefully in the future is of modern day Northern Africa. And you can see running in red down the roughly regions between the first and the sixth cataracts of the Nile. This is the Southern parts of modern Egypt and the Northern parts of modern Sudan. We have this region called Nubia. Nubia is a word that is perhaps related to Middle Egyptian or maybe to another language. Kush is another term that shows up. Perhaps this is a Nubian word. The word of the people in their language, which appears in Hebrew text as well. But Nubia, Kush, Ethiopia are all referring to this ancient region from the first to the sixth cataracts of the Nile in northeast Africa. And with what is modern day Ethiopia now, the kingdom, the ancient kingdom in that region. So this is further northeast. This is off the map that I have on the screen. This region was called Aksum at the time when Nubia was in its heyday. And in Aksum, the rulers of this region wanted a new name for their kingdom. Some sources say that they decided on the name Ethiopia because of the historical significance it had in the region. And more importantly, because they conquered what was Ethiopia. And so they annexed it to their kingdom and renamed themselves after this empire. And the name persists today where Ethiopia continues to be the name of a modern nation state. So even when we use different terms, we always need to think about the time period and the geographic borders. You brought up a really great point about Nubia earlier, Jonathan, and the relationship with Egypt. And there's a period, it's called the 25th dynasty, depending on yes. the timeline. We got to learn about it. It is so dope. 
It is so dope, really thinking about the people from this region of Nubia. They were called the Black Emperors more by modern yes. scholars. People from this region being able to control everything up the Nile all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. And so Egyptians were under their control. And it's such a powerful time to think about because these rulers, Taharka, Shabaka, Shabitko, Tanwatamani, these are rulers who are from what we would consider today Black Africa, what we would consider today to be parts of Egypt and Sudan, but they're ruling people all the way up to the Mediterranean. And because of the importance of water, if you run the Nile, you run things in this region, you're controlling trade coming in from the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean, and you're determining whether or not Romans and Greeks can get incense, whether they can get particular animals that they need for war, or whether they can get particular spices for their food as well. So it's an incredibly important part of the world and something that I'm pushing for in my work and that I hope to get into in later years is really thinking about ancient Africa as being part of the ancient Greco-Roman world. Because as we've been saying, it's not even just Athens or just Rome. It's the people they interact with. So it's really important to include ancient Africa on that map and in our in our mental realms to really start thinking about the languages and cultures that are thriving at the same time as Herodotus and Augustus and all of these other figures that are so popular and that end up dominating the mainstream. So I'm not going to go down that one road, even though my inner cosmetologist is wanting to, but I'm not going to. Although I will just say that Dr. Tina Lassisi, who we have had on the podcast, I just said I wasn't going to, but now I'm fucking doing it. She's this like evolutionary biologist and she studies like scalp and hair evolution. And she was talking about how like, it's like a modern failure of medicine. Like there's so many people who are like biracial and black who are getting melanomas, who are getting skin. And like, we all need to protect our skin from the sun because like skin cancers are skyrocketing and like all these fucking people. And we just aren't like teaching people about that. But that's like a hardcore, like hard right. But I just want people to protect their fucking skin. And we're all so cute and young looking. And I just want us to protect our skin. You're so right. I wear SPF 30 every day. I do not every play day. with my skin. And it is really not important. Like and it does make me sad. I've had friends who have had family members who have died who are very, very dark skinned. But a lot of times it's not detected because of how dark your skin is. And I think that mm. that is one of the really scary parts of melanoma too, where if I have a tumor, but because all of the images in the textbooks of dermatology are of light skin, my doctor doesn't even know that's a birthmark or if it's some sort of burn scar. So I think that we really need to Think carefully about not having whiteness be the norm, period, whether it's in modern medicine or in antiquity. Oh, but Jonathan, yes. I definitely take your point in terms of really not saying that just because we're not using the language of sunburntness, we don't need to protect our skin. Because I want the buoyancy to be with me until the end. All up forever, you know, like we do, we all deserve it. Well, and there's the famous example in Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey. And I think Jackie Murray talks about this, where the same word is used to describe Odysseus, our hero, and then someone who was working for him, a, a messenger, I believe it is. And so for Odysseus, it's translated as tanned, you know, like he went uh, down to Cancun and like sat on the beach a little bit. And then for the servant, it's it's black because of the modern association between blackness and class. So this infects our translations. It infects the way that we teach. It's it's so hard to unwrite this. And Sarah is doing such important and wonderful work in correcting the narrative. Can we talk hair for one minute, Jonathan? Fuck yes. You got me on hair because even thinking about the styles, when I traveled as an undergraduate to Rome to different museums, I saw nary a black skin in the museums, partly because of the ways that we tend to assume that if there is no color, then the default is white. But I saw so many braids and twists and all of these really beautiful coiffed hairstyles for Roman matrons, for people who we wouldn't always associate with having really intricate hairstyles and people would have hair pieces they would wear too. But it's really important to also think about the ways in which we code braided hair or twists or curly hair with particular communities now. But it was hot back then. I mean, it was definitely the trend to have someone come and do your hair and to really have a style that ended up giving you more volume and more texture. So I think that even when we think about something that seemingly is objective as hair, there's so much richness in the ancient Greco-Roman world. 
I hope you do a podcast about ancient hair because there's so much to say about this. And actually my friend and fellow Baltimorean Janet Stevens is a great person to consult about how they actually constructed these elaborate hairdos. Oh, Fashions are international. So the Fayum mummy portraits in Egypt are really uh, very vivid representations. And you can see that fashions in the city of Rome um, travel very quickly into Egypt. There, mm. There's a trend for dressing up like a Briton. It's fashionable to have um, blonde hair sometimes like a captive slave because Germans at this time were most often seen in the city of Rome as captives with no standing. But there's some really interesting uh, fashion play that, that people do almost like a kind of cosplay where people will dress like recently conquered people and you can make what you want out of that. But there's a whole world to talk about over here as well as a world to think about when people see what they associate with African hair and they make a lot of assumptions about what they're looking at. All too often, modern curators will, will see someone who looks dark or who looks like they have um, kinky hair and they will say, oh, this must be a slave. And that is a really irresponsible way of categorizing people by importing modern concepts of difference onto antiquity. They were fucking traveling everywhere back then is what I also hear you saying. So like, were they ever just like talking about how people didn't look the same? Was that like a thing that people noticed? What's striking is that sometimes they mention color, sometimes hair. Sometimes it'll be outlandish things like they have a foot growing out of their forehead. So it's always taking things with a grain of salt when it comes to these historians or geographers who are known for traveling. But what is beautiful is that there's not one standard. And so the ways in which we tend to identify people first by skin color in the present day, and then we fill in the other parts of their identity, it doesn't seem to be the same with antiquity. So going back to our man Herodotus, and we can leave him soon for a new example, but there's a, a passage where he talks about people going to interact with Ethiopians, and he doesn't mention their skin color at all. It's just you go, you travel there, but he does mention how rich they are, how incredibly handsome they are, how they're just some of the finest of the finest of the people on this planet, and how they have so much food and and liquid and they live a really long time so maybe they're divinities maybe they're not and for the informed reader he may be looking back to this group of ethiopians who appear in the homeric epics which nandini mentioned were performed written penned in the 7th century 6th century bce so maybe two three hundred years before herodotus is writing but in that text the ethiopians are essentially a celestial airbnb God's go there for vacation. And when they're done with their vacation, they go back to the world of mortals. So there's so much more that can be used to describe a people other than their skin color. But we can get bogged down in wanting to see were they black or white? What continent were they from? Because of our own sort of preoccupations and the ways in which color is so important in this context. I did that. I did it. I did it. But it's so it's much true. more. Yeah. And I look forward too for opposite. I'm like, where's my brother? And so where's my great, great, great grandfather? Could this be him? But I do think that that's more because of the ways that color, not to use a pun, but it colors the ways in which we look at the world. And when we look at these texts where people did not automatically use that as a first way to judge someone, it really reminds us that there are so many other ways that we still categorize and treat people fairly or unfairly, but we can use things that now seem really almost superfluous or second rate after we get past color. So it's really exciting to go through these texts and see people described in other ways. Egyptians in Herodotus texts are just the opposite of Greeks. So if Greeks urinate standing up, then Egyptians urinate sitting down. Or if Greek people have really long hair, then Egyptians are all bald. Did they say that about the peeing sitting down and standing up? There is this dichotomy, absolutely. And it's some people have sex in groups and some people have sex individually. Some people share wives. So it's all of these different ways of describing groups. Who did they say that about what? For this, uh, the group in the, like, one-on-one? -on -one? Who did what? That might have been the Lydians or the Persians. The Babylon called trade. Is that okay. the one where the it Babylonians... I, yeah, you, we'd have to fact check that. <laughs> Is that why all the gay bars are called, like, Babylon and, like... <laughs> Queer's fault because like, they were like, like having group Sodom sex and, and stuff. <laughs> I wonder. Was Sodom and Gomorrah in Babylon? We're like way out of my. Oh, I'm <laughs> my sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I freaked out. No. Tell us more, Nandini. I also think we cannot underestimate the importance of fashion and dress in expressing the self here because it's interesting. In my period, often it's what you wear that is your expression of your ethnic identity. Mm. If you like are wearing pants, then you must be a barbarian. You're probably from Thrace. If you're wearing a long, loose gown with a belt and possibly 
simply an earring. You might be from, from Carthage in North Africa. What's interesting about this is it means that you're coding who you are based on your clothes, but you can take off your clothes and put on someone else's clothes. And there's this really interesting intersectionality with gender where sometimes you'll find a couple that's married and they'll put up a tombstone for themselves. And the guy might be like a German, but he maybe fought for the Roman military. So he'll be looking really Roman, but his wife from the same tribe will have native costumes. So there's a way that women are associated with maybe staying longer in that home culture uh, and kind of keeping that a little bit longer. There's also some really interesting other factors. So like a gladiator might be from Thrace, but be dressed like a Celtic warrior. And that Celtic warrior thing is his identity in the arena, even though he's from somewhere else. Or you might have a Celt who's dressed like a Thracian warrior, and that becomes his identity in the arena. So there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of mixing. There's a separation that we see in Rome between your actual birthplace and your ethnic identity and your performed social identity. And in a way, in Rome, we actually kind of loop back to the modern truth that that your identity is kind of a social construction that you're performing and co-constructing with other people. Um, so fashion really matters here too, and it's often the thing that is most emphasized in visual depictions that I look at. It's an easy way to signal a lot of information, but it means that you're not determined by bio race. It means that your identity is a matter of construction. So when you say Celtic, does that mean like Scotland and like up there? Up to like kind of France, Scotland, there's like Gauls. Because the Roman Empire went all the way the fuck up there. Didn't they conquer like England in like 1050? My husband's voice is just coming to me. That's right. The Romans were pretty badass. They were huge. These modern concepts of like enslaving people were based off of stuff that happened back in these like Roman times, right? I think the danger, Jonathan, is importing the categories of enslavement. So there was absolutely enslavement for thousands of years before the Europeans started forcing people onto boats to bring them to America. But the use of color, of skin color, was definitely a modern European invention because as Greeks, Romans, Thracians, Scythians, as all of these ancient empires were going about their business and trying to conquer others, it was usually through prisoners of war that they even got captives, that they even got people that they then enslaved. It was rarely you look this way, therefore you must be of this people who deserve to be destroyed. There are records of some people, for example, Cato, I think it's Cato the Younger Nandini, who would always say at the end of any speech he would give in the Roman Forum, Carthago de Linda S. Carthage needs to be destroyed. So for him, Carthage in North Africa was definitely full of people that needed to be conquered. And Rome did that work and ended up destroying this nation. But for the most part, it was all products of war how you got in people that then became enslaved. And it wasn't as chromatically systematic as it becomes later on. Absolutely. I mean, you could call Rome in a gruesome way. It's equal opportunity in the way that it enslaves because you could be black, you could be white, you could be um, from any part of the Roman world, and you could certainly become enslaved by the Romans. And in fact, it's kind of ironic because nowadays we associate the big costume dramas of the 1950s and 60s with like these British white people pretending to be Roman, right? Like in Spartacus, once the Romans actually went to Britain, the joke was they were so far from civilization that they were just savage. They they had no culture to bring. And, and Cicero is kind of joking, like these Britons, right? They don't know anything. Whereas actually people from the East, people from Greece and Asia and Persia were thought to be much more sophisticated, very educated. So they might become enslaved in order to be like tutors, teachers, doctors. I mean, these things that we think of as very high class professions now actually oh. were, I mean, almost all labor in antiquity is done is done by enslaved people. Um, I also just want to point um, to the, the coding, even in the word slave, the modern English word slave actually comes from Slavs. The Slavic people were actually white people who were enslaved very, very often while the institution of slavery was developing before it got super targeted at Africans. Um, but in Latin, the word for slave is servus. That means someone who has been preserved or saved, i.e. If, if you went out and conquered a town, you had every right to kill everybody and you were doing them a favor by letting them be a slave. Um, but then the Romans also had a system. They, they realized that it could equally happen to them 
so there was a sort of reciprocity where the Romans might enslave somebody, but then there were ways, if you were an enslaved person, to become freed and then even to have the opportunity to gain wealth and to gain money and to rise through the ranks of Roman society very slowly, but surely in a way that does not compare at all to the Black experiences in, in the United States, where we're still fighting for civil rights for Black people in the United States. I just hate that about people, like this dominating and like this like ownership of people. It's just like a gross human thing that I think is just gross. And people are equally able to sustain hypocrisies or like cognitive dissonance across history. So in the ancient world, there are people who said all humans are basically the same. It's only luck that I was born to a wealthy parent and this other person was born to someone who was enslaved and therefore they too were enslaved. They knew that, but they still kept enslaving people. And you can see the same with like the American founding fathers. Like, are we all created equal? Do we all have a right to liberty? Well, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington had no trouble enslaving people while penning those words that so many people hold to as American values. I think we don't have any examples in history of rapid expansion that does not require extreme violence and enslaving of other people. So Jonathan, I agree with you that in an ideal world, we don't need this. But I think if we didn't have that, then even the concept of America or Greece or Rome would not have been able to sustain itself just because as you continue growing your borders, you need more resources. But if you do want to speed it up or if you want to be the industrial center Either you exploit people or if you do it the fair way, it takes a really long time and then you may end up being the fodder for someone else. So it is really disheartening to see the ways in which these cyclical events in history tend to happen. But I do think that humans given free reign, unfortunately, we can be really greedy and that's why it can be useful for us in our personal lives to try to find ways to sort of embody these ethos of of community and I give you a hand up and not a hand out and I try to receive the same when I need it too. A hundred percent. Yeah. Tell me. I totally agree. I mean, just to complicate things even a little more, I would say the Romans actually had a more liberal system of enslavement and manumission than a lot of Greek places because they were so greedy, actually. So offering enslaved people occasional chances to be freed was actually a tool of control. You know, you're going to be more likely to obey your owner if you think that someday you might get out of this horrible condition of bondage. And then once the Romans actually freed people, it's almost like the modern equivalent of like an IPO or like an investment because once they freed somebody, that person would owe them for life and they would have to like funnel any money back. If they went off and like did really well in business, they would have to give a cut to their former owner. So it's actually a way of like investing in people and protecting yourself and growing your own interest. That's the reason why the Romans um, freed so many people actually. And I I sort of think that we could learn a lesson from this um, in the modern world. It would actually help all of society, all of the economy, all companies, all educational systems. If instead of just kind of doing some token diversification and putting like a couple black and brown people here and there in positions of without power, like on our brochures, if we actually really invested in people, um, because those people, um, a rising tide really floats all boats. And we haven't gotten that message out in this country the same way I think the Romans did understand it with their stories of Aeneas and Romulus. So Sarah, going back to ancient Greece, women, Were we thriving? Were we not thriving? I think I asked Sarah this too, but like, is there no just cute, normal gay love stories? Just like the cute little, like sweet ones where they grow old together, maybe? Like, we don't know that it didn't happen. (laughs) Well, the grow old part, Jonathan, is where I think I might have trouble finding an example. But even with Achilles, a great warrior who was a, a hero, he fought with the Greeks against the Trojans in the Trojan War. His boyfriend, his lover, Patroclus, they had a really sweet love story. It's unfortunate that Patroclus dies, but the way Achilles mourns his death is a really powerful scene. He cries like someone who is so hurt and lost like the biggest, nicest dick ever. And they're never going to get to <laughs> see it again. And then he goes and murders 10,000 people. <laughs> exactly. And so the, the flip side is he's so upset that he ends up becoming this war mongering person who just cannot stop killing Well, if you got dicked down that good and then someone fucking killed him, you would fucking go crazy too. You know what? And they probably deserved it. Like, they took his lover away. What about lesbians? Oh. Sappho. You know, Sappho's poetry. So there's a lyric poet from the 6th century BCE from the island of Lesbos. And she just writes about her lover in such open, unequivocally full of desirous ways. And it's really powerful to read because you see that 
She's someone who has status. She's a teacher. And she's talking openly about this woman she's in love with. And homosexuality was thriving in the Greco-Roman world. Do they grow all together? So mm, we have fragments. We have fragments, Jonathan. So we can imagine these beautiful hair flowing and the leaves in the distance. But there are also lyric poets who say the two best days for a woman are the day she's carried out of her house to get married and the day she's carried out of that house as part of the funeral pyre. So there's not a lot of freedom in terms of the ways that women are able to, at least in the text we read, that women are able to really express themselves. There's a, a funeral oration that happens during the big Peloponnesian War, civil war between Athens and Sparta and other city-states join in. And one of the, the orators, this really powerful politician, Pericles, talks about how the best women are the ones who don't speak at all. So there's not a lot of room for women in the political realm. Perhaps in the domestic sphere, they have a lot more power. In the religious sphere, we see them at festivals. They can be priestesses. If women are chased their entire lives in the Roman world, they can become vestal virgins where they dedicate themselves to gods and in Greece as well, they do have this deep connection with the supernatural world. But in terms of if I were a woman and I wanted to vote, or if I were a woman and I wanted to choose my partner, I would be hard-pressed to find people to support me. It would be my father and my husband. Mm -hmm. And Lesbos was only thriving for like a hundred years on one island or what? Well, we don't know what these women got up to at their festivals, you know? We'll never know. Their secrets will die with that. <laughs> and women were going together. There were deep friendships where they would go and they would dress up. And it was a time only for women. So the Thesmophoria was one type of festival where it's women and girls only. So we don't know what happened. And the fact that the word lesbian and the island of Lesbos seem to have a connection does show us that there is this looking back, even in terms of thinking about lesbian identity or, or the word and this island of Lesbos. So I'm sure with future discoveries, we'll be able to maybe complicate the story more, but find different instances of ways in which homosexuality thrived, not just for men, because we have so much evidence for that, but really thinking about the ways that women who had more limited spheres in which they could dominate were also experiencing sexual pleasure, not just from their husbands. You also see examples of collective action amongst women in visions. Like there's the uh, comedy called Lizistrata, where the plotline is that these women are tired of their husbands being at war. So they decide to do this sex strike against their husbands. So uh -huh. the question is, what's the comedy there? Is the comedy the idea that women could do this and figure this out? I would also add that the reason I think why we have love between men so celebrated in antiquity and eroticized and there's so much art there. I mean, it's amazing, right? Is precisely because women are not even considered equal human beings. Like they're considered to be like biologically defective, intellectually inferior. And if you can't see a woman as an equal and you're a man, then a man is like your only potential for true love, right? For the true love of equals. So it's actually uh -huh. interesting how there's this flip side of like this gender oppression that's actually giving us some of this like wonderful exaltation of gay love. Who said that about women back then? Like who oh, was like the Francis Galton of that time, like saying like all this stuff about women? everywhere biological treatises medical treatises like it was thought that their womb was floating and that's literally what made women hysterical <laughs> the fact that they have like periods and their bodies changed was like deeply threatening and weird uh, to these ancient thinkers and the fact that they're like penetrated sexually made them kind of vessels where like they could be inspired by divine elements and you know become prophetesses or things but basically their bodies are there for the purposes of reproduction and they're essentially chattel like your wife is kind of somebody that you basically own her reproductive capacity and she's there to generate children for you. They even thought that it was actually only the male sperm that created the child that, and the woman was just kind of like an incubator and didn't really add a lot of material. So even, even in their very basic concept of reproduction, there's a famous play by Aeschylus where Athena, the goddess who is born from the head of Zeus, votes to exonerate a guy that has killed his mother because she basically thinks that even though she's a woman and she's the goddess of wisdom, she also kind of contributes toward the devaluation of mothers and motherhood and reproduction and all of that. But perhaps a, a silver lining could be, Jonathan, the ways in which mothers and people who are related to men in power sometimes do find ways to wield their authority. So there are figures, Olympias, who was the mother of Alexander the Great, 
was said historically to have been someone who was really important in terms of the rise of this young Macedonian ruler who ends up ruling Greece. And she's someone who married into the family. She married Philip II, and they have Alexander the Great, but she's able to have political influence on a scale that had not really been imagined before then. And if we look in the Roman period, Livia, who was the wife of Augustus, brings in her son to this marriage. So Tiberius is her son, and when Augustus the first emperor of Rome dies, Livia is able to have her son be the new emperor, even though he's not related by blood to the ruler. And we see this with later people, Agrippina the Younger is another woman who really vies for her son Nero to end up becoming emperor. So there are ways in which women will use whatever power they have, whatever political power they have based on the men in their lives, usually their sons, to have some, some influence on the country and on the world in which they live It is unfair that so much of the ways in which they have power is related to men. And the the danger becomes when we have right-wing white supremacists using some of this. So a really famous text is Xenophon's Oikonomicus, which is a text where Xenophon, this writer from the 4th century BCE, is giving a manual to people about how to run your house. And in it, he says really vile things about what women should do, some of the things that Nandini mentioned. And this gets picked up in particular supremacist groups in ways that then become a shorthand for we just need to go back to those times. Curtis Dozier has a really great blog called Pharos where he documents all of these ways in which the white supremacist structure is using and misusing and abusing the classical Greek and Roman world for their own purposes. So I would definitely point any listeners who want to see it and be able to really critically engage with it there Because it can be really difficult to engage with this material directly and to see the ways in which incels or other communities are using these texts to say that women have no place in in the academy or even outside of the house. And I know Donna Zuckerberg has written about this, too, but there's so much important work being done to really dispel these careful cherry picking of particular quotes and using them as a catch all for exactly where the world should be. I have a lot to say here, but I want to pause for a pop quiz for Jonathan. I'm, I'm so ready to stop thinking about <laughs> incels. So, yes, tell me, like, these fucking just, but, like, they, I don't, just, why are we so fucked up? Everything's fine. We're fine. I'm not overwhelmed. Everything's fine. Give me, give me the pop quiz. Okay, so even though we've deconstructed the idea that there was only Greece and Rome and that those are totally separate and there aren't wonderful other cultures thriving in other parts of the ancient world, um, where would you rather be an enslaved person, in Greece or in Rome? Based off of that one stuff that you said about, well, I do hate a Bethany Frankel clause. Maybe Greece. No, no, because of, <laughs> no, because of Gladiator. Like I would have, because isn't that Greece? Isn't Marcus Aurelius in Greece? But he's a Roman emperor. So he does go oh, there. So yeah. Gladiator is in Rome. Gladiator is all over the place. <laughs> oh, so wait, so Gladiator isn't really historically accurate then? <laughs> That could be a whole other podcast. Um, But I I would pick Rome because you have a higher chance of being able to be manumitted and your children might have a chance of being free and there were a few more legal constraints, but that's me. Where would you rather be a gay man? Greece or Rome? Rome? Well, I think you would have gone in either one, actually. How about a woman? Where would you rather be um, biologically or culturally or socially a woman? You couldn't pay me enough to go live in those times because, like, I mean, you could have, like, died of syphilis and I'm, like, a huge slut. Like, so that would have been terrible. <laughs> like, it just never could have worked. And so, um, but I, I would have gone back for, like, a day just to pop in, see the fashion. So, Janiforms. What what are Janiforms and what can they tell us about diversity in, like, ancient Greece and ancient Rome? Can I give you a question too, Jonathan, since we're still yes. on the pop quiz realm? So I want to ask you, if you look at this image, so I'm showing you a cup that's at the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, and I usually will start talks with this. I'll ask you to describe what is the color that you see on the left side of this cup. So it's a cup with two faces that are connected, and they're two different colors. But how would you describe the face on the left? Terracotta. Terracotta. Sophisticated. <laughs> yeah, terracotta. Yes. Yes, you are so into the art historical world. And how would you describe the color of the face on the right? Black. Black. 
And these are definitely fair terms, and these are ones that get us into the mind of the viewer. But with the face on the left, so this is a clay-colored face, terracotta, light brown, however you want to describe it, a lot of museums will either leave it unmarked so they don't mention the color and they just say that there's a Greek woman and a black person, or they'll call it a white person. I'll say this is a white person and a black person. And something that can be really dangerous is to use the language of whiteness as we mean it today to talk about people of the past, because the only white on this is the sclera, the white parts of the eye and the teeth of the face on the black. But when we code it as white, we also implicitly tell viewers that this is the color, this is the ethnic group of people from a particular region in the past, and the blackness is foreign and the blackness is weird, and that's why we need to mention it in the label, but we don't need to focus on the color of the other side. So these sorts of images I find really intoxicating, to, to use a pun, because they were used in drinking parties, they were used in these formalized symposia where people would come together, you'd go to your friend's house, you'd recline on benches, drink, play games, men would have sex with men, other people would sing, enslaved people would be brought in for entertainment. Sometimes, rarely women would come around, but this was really a hyper-masculine space where people were able to perform and sing and put on different identities that they didn't always get to tap into outside of this symposium outside of this party. And in this party, they would drink from these cups. So the cup that I'm showing you is pretty small. It would, it's no taller than about 20 centimeters. So from the base of the palm of my hand to the tip of my middle finger. But these would have been filled with wine that was diluted with some water. And people would have been drinking, getting tipsy, using other drinkware as well. But these cups would have been used in a jovial setting. So when we see it in a museum, it feels sterile and very maybe sophisticated because of the way the lighting is hitting it and the AC is just right. These would have been thrown around. They would have been cracked or chipped. And the fact that some of these have two faces means that they would have also been encountering the different people in these spaces. And maybe stories would have come up about them. But we're getting two colors, this clay colored and the black. We're not getting just one, and neither is is being subjugated. They both seem to have this element of, of sophistication, of attention to detail, the curls of the hair and the earrings. The danger is when we start saying one is enslaved, one is a ruler, and we're just seeing slavery writ small on a piece of pottery. Would this cup have been meant to show, like, maybe a partnership between, like, two different groups of people? Like, because it's like you said, there is so much attention to detail. They're both gorgeous. Would have been, like, a cup to celebrate, like, some party or, like, commemorate maybe, like, a marriage or something? It could be, because the face on the left with the curly tendrils and the delicate features of the face could have been a woman, and the face on the right maybe could have been a woman because of the earrings, maybe a man. But it seems like these two have some sort of harmony together, and these are two groups that perhaps were not in the symposium, they were not in the drinking party because women were usually not invited to these spaces. So maybe there's a subversion in the two together, but there is this element of beauty too. And sometimes when we look at beautiful things, they make us feel good, they can arouse us as well too. So it's unclear the role that they played, but it's clearly part of some kind of game or some kind of jocular atmosphere that they're adding to that's really powerful to think about because if we look at both faces as beautiful and we don't describe one as having swollen features or the other one as having very sophisticated features, then we really start decolonizing our minds. So some museums will describe the lips of the black face as being swollen, and swollen is not mm. a compliment. Swollen is a remnant of language that's sure. yeah. really yeah. violent. But if we call them full or plump, it does add this sense of respect to them and with the face on the left, if we think about maybe not calling the nose perfect, but maybe calling it pointed or calling the lips thin and not ideal, then we really start showing that these are two sides of a coin rather than thinking about one as being ugly and one as being beautiful, which is what some art historians unfortunately have concluded. Well, that just reminds me of how like a lot of times like science can be a product of its time. And if things were racist in its time, then a lot of the ways that people are going to describe stuff like can be racist or like some reflection on that. Let's rewind then and let's imaginatively go back to the drinking party. So I was outlining your hangout and we're all drinking. We're having a great time. Um, so which side do you pick up and which side do you drink from, Jonathan? And what is the person across from you, your friend seeing when you pick up that side? So if you drink from the one side, the other friend sees the other face. 
Yeah. So either you're looking at one face, but then you're becoming the other face when your friend is looking at you, or you can swap it around, right? So you're really intimately engaging with these things. You are directly confronting an other, and you were almost like becoming that other person. And it's a kind of joyous moment of play. I hate to keep going back to this woman thing, but I just... So like, if you were a lady... You just couldn't be a slut if you wanted to. Like, women weren't allowed at the group sex things. Like, women couldn't be, like, super sexual in any of these cultures. Or they just didn't write about it because it could get you in trouble. So maybe they did, but it could put you at risk of getting in trouble. Do you want to go to the orgy? Like, all those guys get to go to an orgy and you don't get to go. Like, I would want to go to an orgy. In fact, I always feel bad for the girl (laughs) at Fire Island that went with all of her gay friends and she doesn't get to go to, like... Plenty of examples, like the people who would have been going to Fire Islands would be the Roman emperor's daughters and wives sometimes because they had a lot of access. So there's an interesting fact that Augustus's daughter and granddaughter, Julia, they were both called Julia. They were both having affairs. They were living it up, you know, and and Augustus was like, sometimes you forget that you're my daughter. She says, no, no, I'm just always conscious I'm your daughter. So that's why she's able to to sleep with whoever she wants because she's actually kind of above the law because she's so well connected that she can't be punished. So, but normal people couldn't like own it ever maybe because it was just too dangerous it depends on your circumstances i mean there's an empress messalina who's married to an emperor and she was supposed to have actually like worked in a brothel for fun because she just loved sex and she loved this chance to kind of i think like slum it right and do a sort of lower class work but then she was making out like money off of people who like were like in harm's way and stuff so that part sucks so like she was like sex positive but with like a nasty twist because she was like mean to people yeah, they all they all get punished in the end, and they certainly get punished by the historical record, is for sure. As we are talking about like women owning their sexuality in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, there's a lot more that we need to unpack. One thing that comes to me is when we got to interview Professor Zhui Guo, who is an expert on early China, which, if my memory serves me correctly, is like zero to one thousand. And a lot of that stuff is like happening at the time that we're talking about, you know, a little farther away, which is really interesting. Like these epicenters of like culture and like just epicenters of things that were happening. But she's told us that like how a lot of times history is written by the winners and like the people who were kind of dominating. And so maybe that's why we don't have like as much history because women were like not being treated with like societal like respect. And it was like, like super problematic. So I feel like we might have to do a cliffhanger on this part uh, class, which like, I think Sarah and Dandini will very graciously come back to talk to us a little bit more, but I don't want to end like that totally. So um, Sarah, I'm going to turn the floor to you on any final thoughts where people can follow you in the meantime. The floor is yours. Sure. Thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate you bringing up women because we do tend to ride over them or not pay much attention because we don't have the resources. And after students get over the frustration of not having it, we immediately move to the men. So it is useful to think about how we can rehabilitate archives, even when we don't have resources. And I definitely turn to a lot of Black theorists to help me in this. There are a lot of people, Christina Sharp, Sadia Hartman, different people who are really theorizing how do we fill in the blanks, Tia Miles, all of these historians, scholars of English literature who are really, really creative in being rigorous about how we can read gaps and silences that I think the field of Greco-Roman studies could really benefit from. In terms of my own work, my book came out this year, 2022, Untangling Blackness in Greek Antiquity. The coupon code for anyone who loves a good deal is UBGA2022 to get 20% off. And the book is filled with different anecdotes, stories, Black studies, African studies, urban studies, really trying to think about broadly encompassing uh, a field of classics that has all of these different things. On Twitter, my handle, I think that's the right word. I'm a child of the 90s, but my (laughs) my spirit is in the 20s, but I would not want to live in the 20s. But my handle is at Black Antiquity. So definitely, I try to put articles that are of interest to me there and upcoming events that I had different opportunities to speak about my work. I'm smashing the follow button on Black Antiquity. We'll also <laughs> include a link to your book and the discount code and whatever you're listening to the episode on. We got to push that. We love that work. Um, and I'm following you yesterday. That is so exciting. <laughs> I love that. Um, Sarah, is there any like final thoughts that you want to, or do you want to just like save it till we meet again? Let's keep thinking about capacious ways of imagining Blackness, and we'll get into it more next time. Also, want to tell us what capacious means again really quick? Expansive, opening up your mind, looking beyond 
tomorrow and yesterday. Let's break down barriers of time and geography and just put on all kinds of multiverse goggles, Marvel. Let's go. Let's go. Yes. Okay. I'm obsessed with that. Also, I just wrote down, was Nubia the original Wakanda? (laughs) Let's talk about it. Nubians were warriors. Yeah, they were so good at archery. They were known for it. We're going to learn more about it next time. Also, Nandini, tell us where we can follow you, what we can see of you, and uh, where we can follow your work. Thanks. It's been so much fun. Um, I'm at Global underscore classics on Twitter. Um, you can also look me up and follow me on academia.edu. Check out some of my lectures on my project on Roman diversity, which I'm currently writing for Princeton University Press. Um, but I just want to, you know, speaking of capaciousness, I just want to say, I mean, Sarah is totally right. There are so many people left out of the archive of antiquity. The vast majority of people, especially enslaved or non-elite people, um, non-male people are all getting left out. So there's a couple different fixes. One is to change how we do classics and what kind of methods we use to uncover the past. And sometimes we have to be creative. We have to read sources against their grains. We have to use our imaginations to follow the trajectories of people that didn't get to have their own voice voices in the record. But another way that we can change this is actually by being more capacious about who does classics and who are voices of authority in classics. I mean, usually when you mention classics to someone, they imagine this like old white dude in like a tweed jacket, you know, talking in front of a white statue of Homer. And I think just by having us on the show and by having scholars like Sarah do such wonderful work and kind of really get innovative scholarship out there and by representing people of color that have historically not been included in the discipline of classics, in the professoriate, in the public face of of scholarship. I think that's a really great start. So I just want to thank you, Jonathan, for doing all you've done to make this space possible and make this conversation possible and bring our message to your large and wonderful audience. I just wanted to learn stuff. And like, you know, I just have this like penchant for, and as does our show with like getting the best guests for the job, it's not our fault. We have great taste. You know what I'm saying? Um, (laughs) So, and then also to listeners, uh, if you are just like, scintillating, tintillating, like so excited that this is going to be a two-part episode and you have special questions based off of what we've talked about so far, please submit that in our DMs. That's so exciting because we really never get a chance to do that. So we're like burgeoning on like new things we've never tried before. So I'm obsessed with that for us. Sarah, I'm obsessed with you. Nandini, I'm obsessed with you. Thank you so much for coming and getting curious. I can't wait for us to have another talk. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. I can't wait either. Ah! You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. Our guests this week were professors Sarah Derebo and Nandini Pandey. You'll find links to their work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and you can show them how to subscribe if you would just help us out a little bit. But thanks so much for your support. Not to ask you for another thing because we just love you so much. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJVN. And our socials, we are just following up on all of our past guests, stories that we're following. If you're not following at CuriousWithJVN, honey, you have an opportunity to get even more out of the podcast. So follow us over there. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Zara Krim. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. 